Hi, and welcome to The Last Outlaws bonus content. I'm Emma Lancaster, the executive producer of Impact Studios at UTS, an audio production house funded by the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research. Before we start, I want to let Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners know that this bonus episode contains the names and descriptions of people who have passed. The Last Outlaws story starts in the year 1900 and draws on the colonial archive. Please be aware that there are words and descriptions used in these archives that may be culturally sensitive. Terms from this material reflect the attitude of the author or period in which the item was written and may be considered inappropriate today. Throughout the making of the Last Outlaws podcast, we knew that Joe Governor's story would be a difficult story to tell. Joe Governor is not as present in the archives as his brother Jimmy, and through UTS law professor Catherine Biber's incredible research, along with the generous Governor family, we've been able to bring awareness to the deeply saddening issue of Joe's stolen ancestral remains. This is a deeply upsetting issue, and the impacts of repatriation are connected to a living history for Aboriginal people, part of a daily struggle to gain respect and dignity in light of our colonial histories. But repatriation is also a story of Indigenous achievement and success. In the first of our bonus episode series, we're going to be hearing from the Last Outlaws cultural consultant and expert in repatriation, Dr Lyndon Ormond-Parker. Lyndon is an honorary senior lecturer in the Centre for Heritage and Museum Studies at the Australian National University, and he's been on the front lines of the repatriation fight since the 1990s. Dr Ormond Parker's areas of interest include Aboriginal cultural heritage, history of medical collections, history of collecting Aboriginal remains, archives, cultural heritage, and culture as an Indigenous social determinant of health. He spoke with reporter Caitlin Sorey and producer Frank Lopez in the top-end Aboriginal Bush Broadcasting Association studio in August this year, just before Darwin went into lockdown. In this in-depth interview, Lyndon shared his deep knowledge of cultural repatriation, the fight for ancestors' remains he's been a part of, and he reflects on the difficult, delicate and time-consuming work of cultural repatriation. Lyndon thinks this movement will continue for the next 30 years. We hope you find this conversation as illuminating and informative as we did. And if you'd like to know more about repatriation in Australia, visit the website returnreconcilerenew.info forward slash. That's returnreconcilerenew.info forward slash. So for people who haven't heard the word repatriation before, what does that actually mean? So repatriation is the physical return of, and in this case we're talking about Aboriginal ancestral remains. And when we talk about Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander ancestral remains, we we mean the uh, human bodily remains of our ancestors that have been uh, often taken overseas into other institutions around the globe or Australian institutions. And they've been sitting in uh, museum, university collections for many, many years. And when we talk about repatriation, we're talking about the physical return of individual human remains back to the communities and families of origin. Mm. So, for example, uh, throughout the 18th and 19th an early 20th century, there was a great desire to collect the human remains of Indigenous people from all around the globe. And Australia and 
Torres Strait Islander and Tasmanian remains were all very much sought after for collections all over the globe. And ancestral remains were collected by people like doctors, missionaries, archaeologists, anthropologists, farmers, the police, could have been agricultural workers and even amateur scientists that came to Australia and often they were either based here or came out for extended periods of field work, often collecting other samples including uh, zoological specimens, fauna and flora and other material to quench the thirst of European museums and other societies such as anatomy societies or anthropology societies, geography societies. Now, our remains, along with our uh, objects, were very much sought after. And so we had many people in Australia collecting remains from burial sites, but not only buried remains, also remains that may have been placed in caves uh, and other places as a final resting place. Mm. Now, as the colonies grew, uh, many Aboriginal people often died in potentially hospitals, uh, their bodies ended up in morgues, and their remains were often sent directly from morgues and hospitals uh, to collecting institutions all over the globe. And in particular, when they were collected from uh, morgues or hospitals, it was often there would be a local doctor that had trained in an overseas institution such as Edinburgh University, Oxford, Cambridge, uh, and other places all over Europe and the Western world at the time. And so remains were sent and traded and sometimes sent for a commercial value. So sometimes there was monetary exchanges, in particular if we had anatomy departments seeking the uh, remains of Indigenous people would actually often either pay for them or they would do exchanges for other objects and potential human remains to other institutions. When you first hear something like this, the first question that comes to your head is, why are people doing this? Why did people do this? Yeah. So ancestral remains were basically collected from all over the place, but the remains were also collected for so-called scientific purposes. So comparative anatomy was around at the time, so people wanted to compare races of people. And of course, we had the start of uh, Darwin's theory of evolution as well, where they mapped human races on a scale with monkeys and gorillas being at the low end and then other people such as Aboriginal people, Tasmanian Aboriginal people, islanders uh, progressing up the chain until, of course, you had the white man at the top of the uh, race pyramid. And so often to prove these racial theories, people studied uh, Indigenous remains, including often the skull of individuals. People wanted to see if, for instance, Indigenous people had smaller brains than the white man. And, of course, all of these theories were later debunked. And also we're looking at a thing called phrenology, which was the lumps and bumps on the skull, which people thought they could interpret as personality traits. If you had certain lumps and bumps or the shape of your skull determined your personality trait. Now, phrenology has been debunked, but also a lot of the racial theories based on physical appearance have also been debunked. And of course, um, we had the Second World War and Nazi Germany, which were 
suggesting that there was a definite hierarchy of race. And of course, we know what happened uh, with the Germans in Second World War. But after the Second World War, some of these theories about population diversity became slightly unpopular. And so people were then, um, not until more recently, there's been a surge in an increase in people wanting to study uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander remains for other purposes, such as scientific DNA testing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this has been in the name of science, where remains were removed and to progress various scientific theories that had come about at the time. Mm. So you, you mentioned phrenology. What came after phrenology and how is that tied into this story? Well, it was all under the banner of comparative anatomy, I guess, is the best way of looking at it. But also scientists often would collect uh, remains for teaching purposes uh, in medical schools and anatomy schools to teach anatomy. And often uh, they would also collect remains with various different forms of disease so that they could teach students about uh, the way that people uh, had passed away and from the various diseases of mankind. Uh, and they also used Indigenous populations as part of those overall comparative studies. Talk me through how repatriation is, is viewed. There's this idea that repatriation is Reconciliation and action. Can you talk me through that? Yes, sure. So over many, many years, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander remains were collected, ended up in many institutions all over the globe. Um, but Aboriginal people have been objecting to the removal of their ancestors, including from uh, burial sites uh, and from other places. And of course, we have the first recorded objection of Aboriginal people objecting to the removal of their ancestors. So we had a uh, congregational missionary called Lancet Threlkeld, uh, is his name, and he uh, records in his diary that on seeing a Aboriginal burial, that an Aboriginal lady came up to him and said in broken English that I would not like to disclose where they had buried their relation. And on asking why, she replied in broken English that the woman's relatives were afraid that a white fellow should come and take her head away. So this is in 1824. So Aboriginal people were aware at that stage that the new people in the colonial outpost of Sydney were collecting Indigenous remains way back then. And so that's the very first recorded journal entry that we've been able to find, and that was through the work of Professor Paul Turnbull, who's done a lot of work in the archives recording the collecting uh, and distribution of ancestral remains. So with all of these objections by Aboriginal people uh, to the collection of remains, uh, as you know, with Australian history, Aboriginal people didn't have much say in uh, what happened to them in their lives. And it wasn't until the 1960s and 70s through the land rights movement that our Aboriginal people started gaining rights and were calling for land rights and rights to self-determination. And it was through this movement that as part of this, Aboriginal people were requesting the repatriation and return of their ancestral remains and material culture. And so the 
repatriation movement is sort of said to have started and gained international momentum in the 1970s. And it wasn't only Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that were calling for repatriation. This was also a global movement of Indigenous people all over the world. And in particular, uh, with the Native Americans uh, in the United States, as well as First Nations people in Canada, and of course, our Maori brothers and sisters across the ditch. So as part of the 1970s repatriation movement, we also had delegates of Aboriginal people going to institutions in Europe, in particular, for instance, the Natural History Museum in London, and people like Michael Mansell and Bob Weatherall, who were lobbying European institutions to return remains to Australia. And so, of course, we had several institutions, including the Natural History Museum in London, who point blank refused any repatriation arguments and suggested that these collections should be kept for the benefit of mankind. Even though many of the individuals in these collections are named and known individuals, we know exactly who they are and where they were removed from and when they were sent overseas. So, of course, you have individuals like Tommy Walker, a famous Aboriginal man uh, who passed away in early 1900s, and his remains were sent overseas to Edinburgh University. And it took almost a century to have his remains sent back to his community in South Australia. And so the story of Tommy Walker is very similar, uh, I guess, in terms of individuals who objected to their remains being taken away and have now been repatriated back to his family. When you think about the scale of ancestors being held in collections, like what is your estimate of how many individuals we're talking about? Well, we can say that at a very small estimate, we can say at least 4,000 individuals that we know of, at least 2,000 in Australian institutions and at least 2,000 overseas. So that's a very small estimate. Now, there is some research going on and continues to go on around the scope of what we're talking about. And of course, these institutions that we know a lot about are, of course, in Great Britain, some in Europe and North America. But we have very little uh, information about Eastern Europe, Russia, uh, Africa, the African continent. But as we undertake further research, we often find collections in all sorts of obscure places all over the world. And with some of these, you know, we've heard several stories about institutions really not wanting to engage with repatriation. Like, why are some institutions still pushing back on that? Some institutions are still pushing back on the repatriation process because there are individuals that still believe that there is a scientific value in these collections. Now, no one is disputing the fact that there could be scientific value in some of these collections. What we as Aboriginal people have been saying to these institutions is that you must come to us and seek our permission if you are going to undertake any scientific research on our ancestors and that there should be a way that Indigenous people have a say in this. Now, 
many institutions in Australia are now at that point where they engage the Aboriginal community if they want to undertake scientific testing on, on ancestral remains. And there are generally processes in place for that. But again, when we're talking about Australia, we're talking about all jurisdictions. So generally in this space, cultural heritage is a state-based issue. And so, of course, we have different legislation with differing level of rights for Aboriginal people in all states and territories. So, for instance, in Victoria, we have the Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Act. And in that act that was amended in 2016, all ancestral remains in Victoria, including secret sacred objects, now belong to the traditional owners from whence they came. And the traditional owners now have a say over those ancestors and what happens to them. And those communities have a say on the repatriation process. So at this particular point in time, all ancestors were transferred into the care of the Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council and the Heritage Council through their Ancestral Remains Unit is working on the repatriation of ancestors held in Victoria. Now, those sorts of laws don't apply in other states and territories. So for instance, uh, in Victoria, it's also illegal to sell secret sacred objects and it's also illegal to export secret sacred objects without the permission of traditional owners outside of Victoria. However, in Queensland, for instance, you can still sell secret sacred items online. And in some instances, we have seen, in particular with Torres Strait Islander remains, uh, internationally, remains come up for sale on eBay in other countries outside of Australia. Lyndon, given that, you know, we have documentation of Aboriginal people saying we don't want this happening to our people as far back as 1824 and, you know, a, a, a movement of repatriation for over 50 years now through institutions. Do you get frustrated? What frustrates me is um, the lack of coordination amongst the states and territories in relationship to cultural heritage legislation. When I talk about cultural heritage legislation, I'm also talking about uh, things like the Aboriginal Heritage Act in WA, which is 1972, uh, which is currently up for review. We have some good pieces of legislation here in the Northern Territory, but also uh, poor pieces of legislation which need updating in other jurisdictions. So we have these various laws which vary greatly among the states and territories. So what I would like to see with some sort of national piece of legislation and or uh, minimum standards that all states and territories sign up to when it comes to Indigenous cultural heritage. And that includes uh, protection of objects in collections uh, and also the way that ownership is seen and that ownership should be vested with traditional owners. So in some respects, it is frustrating. What I'd also like to see is definition of ancestral remains defined at the Commonwealth level. At the moment, we have a definition of ancestral remains, which is in policy, which is run through the Department of Arts, which runs a repatriation program and has done so very successfully for quite a number of years. And their repatriation program funds uh, domestic museums in the repatriation space, and they also fund the return of ancestors from overseas. Now, that's a terrific program, but what's lacking from that program is funding for traditional owners and Aboriginal 
communities to actually go to a pool of funds so that they can actually fund repatriation activities. So at this point in time, often state governments, it could also be industry and small amounts of funds from the Commonwealth are generally put together when it comes to organising a repatriation ceremony. So for instance, repatriation isn't just about handing over a box of remains to an individual community. There are lots of things that need to be taken into consideration during the repatriation process. And that's things like access to land, access to burial sites. People often want to repatriate close to where the remains were already taken. It could be on a restricted site. It could be caves. It could be at the local cemetery. And of course, we have rules and regulations about where uh, people can bury remains. And so that differs between all jurisdictions. But I'd like to see an overarching uh, program where Aboriginal people can apply to get funding to undertake their repatriation activities. And that includes things like engaging your ranger group who are employees to undertake activities uh, for reburial. Often ranger groups now involved in the reburial process, getting all of the permissions that go with it having a repatriation service, which are often run like a normal funeral service, bringing the right people together to conduct the right service is also something that uh, Aboriginal people have said is important to them in the repatriation process. And or if we're, they're named and known individuals and only part of their remain was taken, then often they will potentially want to rebury uh, some of those remains back with the official burial site. So all of these things take a lot of time, it takes a lot of research. So, I mean, this is obviously a, a distressing and painful topic for many Aboriginal communities, but it's also a story of Indigenous achievement and success. Can you talk to that piece of it? So the repatriation movement is a story of success, but it's almost a story of success uh, for the lowest common denominator of rights that you can give people. So... A basic human right in asking for your relatives and ancestors back for a proper burial or putting them laid to rest in whichever way you or form that you choose shouldn't be something that people have to fight over. Now, we are still fighting with recalcitrant institutions overseas, but it should be a fundamental basic human right of everybody, including Aboriginal people, to bury their loved ones in the way that they see fit and to ensure that people's religious uh, considerations are taken into account. And that goes for every race and religion that currently resides in Australia. It should just be something that's afforded them and is generally afforded most people. But unfortunately, Aboriginal people have not been able to seem to uh, really be able to have a repatriation process that is fundamental to them because of the barriers that are in place at the moment for that. And that includes things like access to land, current legislation, lack of funding and the like. But not only that, but then having to go and argue with an institution 
potentially overseas that they want their ancestors repatriated is another burden that's put back onto the Aboriginal communities themselves. Thankfully, we have the Repatriation Unit in the Department of Arts that does a lot of that lobbying of overseas institutions on behalf of Aboriginal people. And because it has been Australian government policy for quite a number of years that they support the repatriation process, we're fortunate enough to have very hard workers in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in the in our international missions, which act on behalf of Aboriginal people to lobby institutions and foreign governments for their return. Uh, and it's not always just about the funding. It's also about our institutions in Australia um, understanding the rights of Indigenous people. And so when I mentioned earlier around DNA and human genetics is now a, the new area of research, that there has been a little bit of pushback in relationship to repatriation of things like hair samples. So for instance, there are over... 4,000 hair samples in the South Australian Museum, which we're unsure who actually currently owns them, but they are at the South Australian Museum and they were collected under University of Adelaide projects. But now we have researchers going in to take DNA samples of the hair samples and they're going to do that by talking to direct descendants of those individuals with the hair samples uh, for the purposes of DNA testing. Now, I'd like to see a lot more work done in terms of the ethics around this and also a lot more work done in ensuring that Aboriginal people are fully engaged and fully informed of these research projects that involve their ancestors, even if it's their hair samples. It raises a lot of issues in terms of once a DNA has been taken from a hair sample, it's part. It's a destructive uh, process where it destroys a third of the sample. Who keeps the data? Who gets to look at it? What's the data used for? Is the data staying in Australia? Is it going overseas? So all of these issues around data privacy, data protection, Indigenous data sovereignty come into play. And because when we're talking about these things, again, just as there was a commercial trade of Aboriginal ancestral remains, there's a potential for commercial trade in Indigenous DNA and the results of the DNA samples that come out. So where can we ensure that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have a say in these processes? Uh, and how do we ensure that the DNA and data that's collected isn't then misused uh, into the future? So this is the new area of uh, genetics and ethics that's being developed internationally um, and how do Aboriginal people have some form of control over this data and control over their collections of their ancestral remains, including things like hair and blood samples. So at this particular point in time, quite a few ancestral remains are just come back from overseas and they're just labelled Australia or Aboriginal or just Torres Strait Islander. So we have very little information associated with those ancestors that come back. 
and at the moment they're stored uh, in a tin shed in Mitchell as part of the National Museum storage facility. Uh, Aboriginal people have lobbied since the late 1970s, early 80s for what's called a national resting place. And so a national resting place would be a place where unprovenanced Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander remains can be held in a safe place in Cam, and in a safe place. Now, I was going to say in Canberra, and the reason I say in Canberra is because we've had three consultation reports on a national resting place over the last 20 years. Uh, and the last report, uh, after extensive consultation with Aboriginal people, said that we should have a national resting place in Canberra so that it's in our centre city's capital. Uh, it's there as a reminder of the repatriation story and it should be there as a public space to tell the story of repatriation and ancestors. It should be a place where people can come and conduct ceremony when remains are sent from overseas or if they're picking up remains from Canberra. It's a place that you can have ceremony and also a place where we can lay to rest in a facility that's purpose-built the ancestors who we don't know where they're from until such time or further research uh, uncovers the identity of those individuals. So one of the things that the current government signed up to before the last election was actually a national resting place. So it is current government conservative liberal government policy uh, for a national resting place. Uh, and IATSIS in the last budget round has been given some money to look at a detailed business case for a national resting place and cultural precinct in Canberra. Now that research is currently being conducted by IATSIS. And I really do hope that once this detailed business case is put to the Commonwealth Government, that we will have uh, approvals and funding for a national resting place and cultural precinct in Canberra. Now, this isn't too much to ask, a place for recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders' histories of this continent. Uh, when you compare it to things like the Australian War Memorial, who just got $500 million for a redevelopment of the Australian War Memorial, and that figure the cost of a national resting place and cultural precinct pales into insignificance compared to the sort of money they're spending on the war memorial. Mm. I mean, for ancestors who can be who can be traced back to country, why is it important that they go back to country? Um, it's important for our ancestors to go back to country because of many Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander belief that their soul or spirit cannot be laid to rest until they have a proper reburial ceremony and put back on country. And so we're not talking just about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We're talking about many religions all over the world believe that their relatives and ancestors should have a final resting place and for their spirit to move on to the next world or the next realm. And so these beliefs aren't unique to Aboriginal Australia. They're, they're often held globally from many Indigenous communities. And of course, we can see from humanity's uh, practice of the disposal of their dead with such loving care uh, that it's not unique to Aboriginal people. But what is unique to Aboriginal people is the 
aggressive collecting of our loved ones that had passed away by many people, including missionaries and the like. Joe Governor's ancestral remains we know were stolen. James Wilson was the university professor who received the remains from Dr Bowman, who was the uh, doctor who performed the, the autopsy. Now, James Wilson said there was no friends or family to gain permission. We know that's not true. How much was this happening at the time of Federation in Australia? At the time of Federation in Australia, Aboriginal people had little or no say in what was happening around them in the development of the colonies. And they also had little or no say over the removal of their ancestral remains and material objects. They had little or no say uh, in the way that people stole their land moved them off from their hunting grounds, replaced kangaroos with sheep. So they had no say in this. And there were many instances of frontier conflicts and, of course, the frontier wars. And through these conflicts, whether it be Aboriginal people hunting sheep and cattle as a replacement for the native fauna that was uh, removed or the land clearing that went on, uh, we know that Aboriginal, many Aboriginal people came into conflict with the ever-expanding colony. And with the ever-expanding colony, we know that there were many massacres that happened, in particular in New South Wales, and then fanning out as the rest of the continent was, was uh, so-called explored and mapped. And so we're looking at a time when also there was a quench for knowledge in Europe at the same time around new peoples and lands that were discovered. And so, of course, with that curiosity uh, came a, you know, an excitement around gaining as much physical material from those newly uh, discovered continents and sending them back to Europe and the United States. And so there were many people that collected just by accident and through discovery that then became a... Uh, dollar value that was given to remains and material culture. And then, of course, they were sold on and then sold on and found their way into collections all over the world. So this dollar value was also pushing the trade in ancestors, not just this scientific curiosity, but also a dollar value for collectors. And there were individual collectors that would collect uh, various remains from all over the world, both private for both private collections and public collections. And so this monetary value of remains, I guess, also drove some of the trade. And so once you may have collected an ancestral full body remain or something that had a commercial value, then you might go on and sell that to another institution for more remains or objects. So this museum trade is something that we, um, we know a little bit about, but we are now starting to, there's a new project out looking at the commercial trade uh, in ancestral remains and where they were sent. It's really a spider web trying to track these things down. Yeah. And so when you're trying to provenance ancestral remains to a community of origin, often you have to follow a paper trail. So we know, for instance, that remains were collected. They were sent to perhaps Sydney University. Sydney University then was trading with other institutions around the globe. We know, for instance, that remains were traded from Sydney University to Cambridge. Uh, and I think we also know that some 
uh, ironically, ended up in Japan. But, of course, we don't really know much about the Japanese collections at this particular point in time. And, again, further research needs to be done. So this is... um, repatriation movement I see will be going on for another 30 years. It's been going for 30 now because, you know, remains were just sent so far and wide and getting the paper trail of these individuals is a huge task. And so why why do people want to do this? It's all part of the reconciliation process as well, where we want to try and rectify something terrible that's happened in the past and sort of almost bring closure on individuals that have been sent overseas and closure for communities um, and families of those individuals that have ended up in institutional collections. Because mm. these, these ancestors, they're connected to people who are living today. So, yes, these uh, ancestors are connected to people living today. And we're not talking about something that happened in eighteen. 18- 24, we're talking about something that continued right up until the 1970s. So we have sites in particular in the Northern Territory where remains were collected in the 60s and 70s and sent to overseas institutions. So we're not, we're not talking about a long past. We're talking about something that happened right up until very recently. And of course, you always hear uh, the odd story from communities where there's a road work and then remains are found. And then, of course, in each jurisdiction, generally the coroner and the police are involved. Uh, Remains get sent to a coroner in a far-off city. Uh, And then we've had instances where then Aboriginal people have had to go and collect the remains and take them back for reburial. And the onus is then back on the individual communities who may not have the funding to do that to then get the remains back. And I remember a case in South Australia, not that, about two years ago, where this exact uh, scenario happened, where remains were discovered or dug up. They turned out to be Aboriginal. And of course, the community was then struggling with the coroner in South Australia to then have the remains removed back on country and the repatriation and reburial process because people wanted to lay rest their ancestor. And, of course, um, we all feel bad when an ancestor's dug up and discovered, uh, whether it be through development or just construction and infrastructure. And so it's a process for the community to go back and do those reburials. So I'd like to see a nationally coordinated approach around repatriation, including a fund for communities to access where where, uh, they have returns. Uh, We'd also like to see a national resting place uh, built in Canberra for those unprovenance ancestral remains, along with a national cultural precinct. And I think these demands are very, very minimal, and it's it's the it's the least that uh, people could do is try and rectify this part of the past and have our ancestors return to us. Not only our ancestors, but also our uh, our secret sacred items and our cultural objects in general. And Aboriginal people want to tell their own story in their own way about their own communities. And supporting communities to do that, I think, should be fundamental in this day and age. If we are really, truly 
want reconciliation in this country, well, then we really truly have to go back and look at these basic human rights, which is the right to return our ancestors, the right to our material culture, the right to tell our stories our way, and do it in a way that's very respectful. Um, and I think uh, these are some fundamental things that um, we as an Australian society need to abide by to move forward. So we've obviously been trying to find the ancestral remains of Joe Governor and we haven't been able, we haven't been successful in that so far. What happens to to ancestors who can't be found? So I've um, heard the Joe Governor story um, which is not dissimilar to many other Aboriginal people's experiences on the colonial frontier with having their remains uh, removed um, uh, very soon after death. Um, and these individual people that were, uh, that were killed by the state or the uh, colonial frontier, in the colonial frontier, conflicts are often in the living memory of their descendants today. And so we have quite a number of individual Aboriginal people that were killed, either their heads cut off and sent overseas, or their bodies mutilated, or turned into objects of curiosity. And so these were traumatic moments in history for those individuals' families and communities at that particular point in time. Now, we have the story of Yagan's head, who was sent overseas, and the Noongar community that was looking for him for many, many years. And he finally, his head was finally uh, found in the Everton Cemetery in Liverpool. And his remains were repatriated to Australia and he was reburied in the Upper Swan River, near the Upper Swan River. And there's a Yagan Memorial Park that was established uh, in his name. Now, we have many Aboriginal warriors like Yagan uh, and others who suffered a very similar fate uh, and that their remains still are all over the world, but who are slowly returning. Now, the individuals that we're talking about are often in the living memory of their descendants and often they have been looking for the remains of their ancestors for many years. But of course, as you know from the Joe Governor story, it takes a lot of time and effort to dig through archives to uncover the truth because sometimes the truth is often not necessarily in an archive, because of the violent acts during the colonial era, people were unlikely to self-incriminate that they had conducted some sort of atrocities. And so digging through archives, trying to find out any record of some of the atrocities is a huge task. Uh, you can see the massacre mapping project has done some of that. Uh, and same with repatriation research, it's a huge task. We might know of individuals who were removed straight after death and sent to an institution, but trying to track down where those individuals ended up. It is an expedition through the archives to try and find as much information as possible. How do descendants get healing if, if those ancestors cannot be found? God, that's a big question. Uh, the repatriation process... Uh, on the discovery of an ancestor 
through the negotiation of having the return remains come back to the communities. Often the community will get together and have a reburial ceremony and healing is done through that process. So the community will often come together as a whole and have almost like a modern-day funeral service where people can pay their respects to their ancestors and then lay them to rest in what they consider the most appropriate form. And so this is all part of the healing process for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country, trying to heal the damage that's been done to individuals uh, in the past. And we're talking about individuals here that were potentially murdered by the state at the particular time or ended up having their remains desecrated. Uh, and so this is just one aspect of the healing process for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia. Uh, so repatriation of ancestral remains is probably a real base level starting point in the reconciliation process. And I think if we can get this right, uh, then we can get some other things right. We still have a healing process that goes on with things like the stolen generations. And I've heard Aboriginal people describe our ancestors in museums as the first stolen generation of Aboriginal people. And so then we've had the forced removal of Aboriginal children from their families and all sorts of atrocities that have been inflicted on us as Aboriginal people. So this all fits into that overall healing process for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And it's th there's a lot of anger and grief that comes with dealing with these issues from the elders who in living memory may have known of the removal of ancestors. So, and I know that that's the case in some of the ancestors that were removed from the Kimberley uh, and other places where the frontier was very much like less than 100 years ago. So talking about this stuff is really hard, particularly like, you know, the colonial project is still ongoing. How do we talk about racism from the past in the present without perpetuating the violence of the archives? The archive is a violent space and the archive always perpetuates the story of violence because we're not going to be able to change history. What the archive does do, it presents history in a very raw and basic format uh, which is being recorded by others and who have perpetrated violence on in this instance, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population of Australia. Now, you're never going to get away from the violence represented in the archive, and nor do you want to get away from that because I think, if anything, the archive has been suppressed and or people have suppressed storytelling uh, of perpetrating violence because as I think I mentioned earlier, no one is going to self-incriminate themselves. So often the stories of racist violence in the archives are often told by first-hand witnesses and never by the person that perpetrated the violence on other individuals. Although occasionally uh, you do get a lot of deathbed uh, confessions that end up in the archive about the extent of violence perpetrated on Aboriginal people during the colonial 
conflict. And one of the things that we've developed in another role, the Heritage Chairs and Officials of Australia and New Zealand uh, have put together a vision statement for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander heritage. And as part of that vision statement, one of the key aspects that it calls on all jurisdictions to do is actually to start this process of truth-telling and truth-telling in terms of our colonial past and the frontier conflicts, which I think haven't been fully told yet. And I think that part of the archive is part truth-telling, even if that story is very sad and upsetting for many Aboriginal people. It's something that we actually want the rest of Australia to be told and educated about. And I don't think there is anything wrong with educating people about traumatic, racist, violent pasts. Because one thing that we do hope by educating people is that we don't make the same mistakes that we've done previously. And so I'm really hoping that in terms of things like collection of ancestral remains, that we don't make the mistakes of the past and continue to do that without the free, prior, informed consent of Aboriginal people. And now we have international standards in law in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which sets out a whole bunch of principles which we should all, as a nation, be subscribing to. And those principles should also be reflected in our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultural heritage legislation, of which a small aspect is repatriation of ancestral remains and material culture. That was Dr Lyndon Orman-Parker in conversation with Caitlin Sorey. If you find that this conversation has caused you distress, we encourage you to seek support from friends, family and elders, your local Aboriginal medical service or a national counselling service such as Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. Thanks to Lyndon for sharing his incredible knowledge with us. If you'd like to find out more about repatriation, you can visit the website Return, Reconcile, Renew. That's returnreconcilerenew.info forward slash... Thanks also to the Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research at UTS for putting us in touch with Lyndon and the deadly team at T-Bar in the Darwin studio, Lee Hewitt, Brendan Barlow and Bernard Namok for helping us out with recording this conversation. Our Impact Studios audio producer was Ryan Pemberton. The production team live on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation whose lands were never ceded. You can hear more from Dr. Lyndon Orman Parker in the last Outlaws three-part series. Find it and listen wherever you get your podcasts.